people take and, and guests take time out of their day, they're spending their discretionary income. Sometimes you're providing a utility for them where it's the first cup of coffee in the morning, um, or it's a slice of pie to make their day better. Hi, everyone. It's Roger. And this episode is all about happiness, one slice at a time. I'm speaking with the founder of a hot concept called The Pie Hole, and it's all about organic coffee and gourmet pie any time of day. Hot concept, can't wait to get into that. But before we do, we have a new feature where listeners can ask us any question at all about their business, about the industry, about an upcoming guest you'd like to see or a topic. All you have to do is just go to the show notes of this episode on our website, restaurantrockstars.com. But halfway down the page, you'll see, ask us a question. Click the button, record your question, and I'll answer it. This week, Emma had asked us, how do we retain our good people, keep our staff? Well, of course, that's the biggest challenge we're all facing right now. And it goes so much deeper than that. It's finding new people. It's keeping the good people you have. And I say it all comes down with your manager style. You know, are you a leader? Do you lead by example or do you delegate? The big difference between delegation is anybody can tell somebody what to do, but to really get the best out of your people, you really have to empower them, nurture them, develop them. Again, lead by example, show them how it's done, what you expect, give them more responsibility, incentivize them, and then have a weekly recognition and rewards programs and identify people for catching them doing something right or going above and beyond and really making a difference in your operation. That's the short answer. If you'd like more information, go to last week's podcast where we talk all about five ways to incentivize your staff. Thanks, Emma, for asking us that question. Now, this episode, again, I'm speaking with Mr. Sean Brennan. He's the founder of The Pie Hole, and we're going to be talking all about how come this company is growing so fast and what is it about the concept that's so special and their you know their staff training philosophies and their service philosophies and just everything they do that will give you nuggets of information on how you can run a stronger more profitable restaurant so don't miss this episode you're tuned in to the restaurant rock stars podcast powerful ideas to rock your restaurant here's your host roger bodwin Rockstars, let me tell you about Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed for restaurateurs by restaurateurs. Effective labor management is more important than ever to maximize profit and success, especially now as restaurants begin to reopen and expand their teams. Trusted by over half a million restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the tools you need to simplify scheduling, easily manage time and attendance, communicate with your team, and retain your talent. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll systems you already use and trust, turning your team into a competitive advantage to your business. Right now, Restaurant Rockstar's listeners can get three months absolutely free. Get started now at sevenshifts.com forward slash restaurant rockstars. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com forward slash restaurant rockstars to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Now on with the episode. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, engaging topics that help restaurants rock their profits, build their brands, deliver amazing guest service experiences. Really excited today. My guest, Mr. Sean Brennan, is a founder and owner of The Pie Hole, Gourmet Pies and Organic Coffee, mostly in the Los Angeles area. Welcome to the show, Sean. How are you today? Great. Thanks for having me, Roger. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm really excited to have you. You know, you've got a 10-year-old concept. I want to get all into the history of the pie hole. I love the name, by the way. Very catchy. I love your website. Really makes your mouth water. You know, <laughs> I got in there and it's like the tagline, you know, pie is love and all that kind of stuff. It's it's just beautiful. So I've got lots to talk about about that. But let's um let's start. I always ask my guests their backstory in the hospitality space. Did you ever work as a kid in a McDonald's? Where did you start and how did it lead to your current gig at the pie hole? Yeah, so my my uh, trajectory in hospitality started off at a, a golf course. So I was a caddy, um, which when you're 14 years old, that is probably the worst job in the whole world. Um, because you know, you're too, too small to carry the, the bags and you're, um, not good enough at golf to actually help anybody. But, um, 
I soon realized that all the fun was being had in the restaurant. So um, I worked my way through the restaurant, starting as a dishwasher, um, busboy, um, worked part-time as a prep, prep cook there, um, and then saw that the real fun was being had in the front of house. So I uh, started working in the front of house and really, you know, through high school, college, um, and you know, until now, I've held just about every job that you can have uh, in the hospitality industry, whether it's, you know, cook, wine director, general manager, owner, server, bartender, um, and you know, really learned that it, you know, hospitality and ser- the service industry is a calling, um, and that it's it's something that has to fit, you know, what makes you happy. And I learned really early that I was um, really happy serving other people and making people happy and creating great experiences. You know, it was very compatible with my early professional career as a teacher. So when I was going through college, I was, um, through teacher school, uh, I, I graduated and was a middle school teacher and a high school teacher and concurrently was working in hospitality at the same time. Um, which is really, you know, compatible because, um, you know, serving students in your community is is really no different than um, than you know serve, making somebody a martini and and uh, serving them and, and getting them what they need. Throughout my experience, I really learned that creating great experiences for people, people take in, and guests take time out of their day. They're spending their discretionary income. Sometimes you're providing a utility for them, where it's a cup, the first cup of coffee in the morning. Um, or it's a slice of pie to make their day better. Uh, we have a chance to kind of make people's days better. Just one espresso, one slice of pie, a chicken pot pie, or whether it's a smile or a greeting um, to make their days better. We have a chance to kind of make people's days better. Just one espresso, one slice of pie, a chicken pot pie, or whether it's a smile or a greeting um, to make their days better. You know, that's really our core philosophy to this day. Um, it's not super complicated. I've always, I've been through a lot of different corporate systems and trainings and things like that. And we, you know, we really, really focus on a positive service driven, uh, corporate culture that relies on finding great people who, um, enjoy serving others. And we take it from there. You know, we can train them to make coffee or make pie or to, to, you know, do the pie whole way. Um, but it's based on those, those early experiences that I had, um, in the hospitality industry, which is the first time you, you get somebody what they want efficiently and it make, and it meets their expectations or exceeds them. It's a very validating experience. Um, so we try to find people who crave those experiences and enjoy them. And, um, uh, we bring them into the team and we, we, uh, we execute the pie whole way along those lines. You know, that's beautiful. It's a great story. And it kind of mirrors my backstory. You know, my very first job was at a country club also. And we talk about that word hospitality, which is really the foundation of our business. And that's really where I learned hospitality. My very first job at this country club was a dishwasher. And no, that wasn't a glamorous job. It was a messy job. It was a hot job. But the people I worked with were so cool. And there was such a team spirit in that kitchen that even though it was, you know, this not a great job as a teen, I loved it just because. And then I was quickly promoted to bartender. And that's where it really kicked in. And what you mentioned to me earlier kind of rings true because, you know, it's great the amount of money you can make as a bartender. This was a private club, obviously, lots of discretionary income flowing through that place. And if you treated the members well and gave them great service, they really rewarded you with really outstanding tips. But it, it was just so fulfilling to me to be able to please people and know that they had very high expectations and to exceed those expectations was really my goal. And who knew I'd be in the restaurant business for 20 plus years, but that was really my start. But everything else that you're talking about, the world needs so much of what you're offering right now, right? This whole world has been devastated by this pandemic. And now everyone needs a little love, a little slice of pie, you know, a smile, 
a certain feeling when you walk in the door or you get a certain service experience. And it sounds to me that's exactly what you're providing. So I think that's tremendous. So pie, of course, is an all-American dessert, right? It's a real classic. And it's anytime comfort food. It's not necessarily a dessert item anymore, right? Like people just walk in at any time of day and they just say, hey, I feel like a slice of pie. Yeah. I, so, you know, when we founded the the pie hole, you know, more than 10 years ago, it's like any business plan, you know, or, or the art of war, you know, you don't really, yeah. yep. you, you know, the best laid plans are, are only as good until the first encounter with the enemy or the guests, we like to say. So um, when we opened our, it was our intention to provide an experience um, for people throughout the day, all the meal periods, um, starting with coffee in the morning, right? So that's why we built a savory pie po- program around um, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, because we knew our sweet pies were outstanding and that that would be a draw, but that doesn't keep you busy throughout the day. And it also doesn't provide the the highest level of utility that we really wanted, which is we wanted to meet people where they were and they're, they're hungry people, right? Um, there's also a niche for savory pies. This is really, you know, at, at that time, there was almost no competition for savory pies. There were some, you know, there were some Australian style uh, meat pie concepts and, and things like that. You know, we were really the first. And then we were also definitely the first pie concept, dri- pie driven concept. So we opened um, in 2010, uh, coming out of m- a massive recession. We were making really high quality pies and we were asking people to spend real money on what we thought was the the, you know, the best pie in the world in order to ask people to spend real money um, on, on that experience, it had to be excellent. The experience had to be great. We had to provide a great, not only utility uh, value for money, but also, you know, an interior place they can sit with nice music and Wi-Fi. And, you know, we we're really trying to be an all day cafe as well. What we learned to answer your question, what we learned is that people will eat pie all day long and that pie was something that was all American, but it was really kind of special, different than, you know, burgers um, or noodles or tacos or sandwiches or whatever, because there was um, a familial aspect to it. We were, we were selling mom's apple crumble to people who were craving their mom and their grandmother and the experience of the table at Thanksgiving time. And they maybe didn't articulate it. Maybe they didn't even know what was driving them to come in and order what they were ordering. But we we were extremely validated just in the business plan. But in the experience, we were we were really making people happy. They were coming in and say, Oh, I haven't had a piece of pie like this since, you know, my grandma used to make it like this, and this is really good. And we were having these conversations about family and holidays. And, you know, it was just really, really great. The early days were were kind of crazy. We had lines out the door for, for years. We never really could keep up with demand. It, it was great. And we kept it simple. It's, it's pie by the slice. It's savory pies. It's coffee. It's, it's been a, we've learned a lot of things and it's been a wild ride, but you know, the core concept of, you know, happiness one slice at a time, which sound, sounds a little hokey, but it's, it's like real. And it, it's what kind of what drives us. It's the kind of the heart and soul. So um, it's been really cool cool journey. So there's so many questions that come to mind about a startup and how you, you know, you conceptualize, have a vision for something, you bring that vision to life and then you market it. And there's so many pieces to brand building, you know, besides a logo and a website and a vibe and you walk in the store and certain colors and fonts and all that kind of stuff that are the basics of marketing. You're telling me you had lines out the door and all that kind of stuff. Did you do any traditional marketing? Did you have to? Did Buzz just instantly kick in and people just said, wow, and I love what they're offering? And, you know, social media, of course, kicked in and all that other stuff. Tell us about the marketing piece of it and how business uh, grew for you. Yeah. So we didn't do any traditional marketing because we were completely out of money when we opened. We had, we, we wanted to market. There was, we had all kinds of plans, had a very, what I learned then, you know, afterwards, uh, a very standard experience opening the restaurant, cost overruns, uh, permitting issues, all, all kinds of things. So we opened much later than we wanted. The goal was to be serving apple pie by the 4th of July, and we opened in October. 
we were very, very lucky to have to be, you know, we chose a great spot and we're very lucky to open in a extremely up and coming buzzworthy neighborhood in the arts district of downtown Los Angeles. And there were a lot of things in the industry that were really working in our favor at that time. Um, that's really when foodies and people who really sought out food experiences and something unique and then post about it, share their experiences with other people and bring friends or their um, colleagues or their family back to that experience. So, you know, and there was just kind of natural foot traffic um, and we we got a lot of buzz. So we're really, really lucky and fortunate um, that there were a lot of things working for us at that time. We were very unique as well. Um, and, you know, we, we did build it. We built it, built it to be successful. Um, I don't know if we built it to scale. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. So um, we we built it to be a national brand, even if we were just a, a one unit pie shop. Um, so the branding elements were there. Um, we had more infrastructure than most um, mom and pop type restaurants at that time. Um, that was all very intentional. Uh, I wouldn't say that it was, you know, everything was lucky and we just happened to be in this great place. But, um, you know, you have to have for a restaurant to succeed, you have to have a lot of things go your way as well. You know, it's it's not all 100% calculated. That's that's a great story. So, you know, I used to live in L.A. and I was in the fashion biz maybe 28, 29 years ago, whatever. And we were downtown L.A. And it's been a while since I've been there. But when you refer to the arts di district, is that like Upper Wilshire and like the Miracle Mile and that whole area? Or am I completely off base with the original location? Yeah, the arts districts, um, downtown LA. Um, so if you were in fashion, it's right near the garment district. Oh, that's okay. The, yeah. So it goes garment, district, California Mart district. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it goes, uh, California Mart fashion district. Then the garment district is right there. And then, mm -hmm. then it would be arts district. And then like little Tokyo is nearby. Um, the only thing, the only district between that would be like the toy district, but I don't even think they've made toys there for a million years. I just know the districts, but it's right downtown LA. It's the last neighborhood before East LA, before you cross the river. So after you opened this original location, I mean, that goes back 10 years or so. How long was it before you started thinking about, okay, this is working. Let's, let's keep opening new locations. And how did you expand your business? So it was 2014. So we, we opened in 2011. It was 2014 where we're cash flow positive mm -hmm. and it was, it was pretty phenomenal uh our unit economics were crazy um we were getting the attention of people all over the country and all over the world um and you know entrepreneurs have a, a very um <laughs> they're a lot less risk adverse so right um we we're not you know as a company in our culture and me personally we're not greedy people who it's not all about money. Um, it it's more about you know are we doing something that we like? Are we passionate about it? Um, is there a need in the, a community, multiple communities that we can serve and fulfill? Um, and you know the answer to a lot of the questions that we had was yes, right? So um, the fast, casual, quick serve. Um, uh, concepts in the food industry and the hospitality industry were growing really fast. We really matched that. It was pretty natural to kind of grow at that time. So we opened our second location in Pasadena shortly after 2014, um, and then started adding units after that. Um, some were franchise, some were corporate. Really took the same philosophy. You know, is is this a good community? Is there a need? And, and do we want to do this? Is this something we have the capacity to do? You know, I think we probably could have opened a lot more units if we were very, very um, aggressive and more interested in, okay, scale, let's try to hit as many units opened every year. But really, you know, so for something like pie, um, you have to be more careful. And we didn't want to bite off more than we could chew either. So 
How do you, I mean, you've got multiple locations now. I think you've got seven or eight stores in LA and we're going to talk about franchising and you've got a couple in Tokyo and Saudi Arabia, which is pretty amazing. But let's talk about location finding because there's a lot of our audience that want to grow their businesses and there's a trade-off between space, traffic, cost per square foot, all that kind of stuff. And what I recall, obviously, hot LA neighborhoods might be, you know, Third Street Promenade, Santa Monica, it might be Montana Ave in West LA, it might be Larchmont, it might be, uh, I mean, there's so many places that come to mind. And I'm curious because those are, you know, kind of hip, cool areas, maybe pieces of Silver Lake were hip and cool when I was there. How do you select these locations and what is the trade-off between the cost per square foot, the traffic counts? Do you do traffic counts? Do you kind of camp out of a potential location and see what's happening in the neighborhood? You do a lot of research, I'm sure. What's your process? Yeah. So, you know, we, we've done it a number of different ways. We've hired consultants, we've paid for data, you know, all, all kinds of things, but it's really, it's really the old school way of like traffic counts are important, foot traffic's important. The, there's general metrics that you try to hit, whether it's, you know, you if you already have an existing business and you're like, okay, let's replicate this. Hmm. You have to figure out what your desired occup- occupancy costs are. You have to look at what, you know, a build out cost is. There's a big difference between turning a foot locker into a restaurant um, and, and getting a second generation space that was a restaurant or has some infrastructure. It has your, um, your MEPs and, and all of those other things. So, you know, I think I can tell you what we learned because we, we've opened and closed some restaurants as well, is that it's very, very important to manage your rent and your occupancy costs. But also, you know, there's a, there is a, a big difference between being in a hip, cool neighborhood and being in a place where people are spending money and that there's a, a utility for, for residents office buildings, people who work there, Mm -hmm. because there are places like the Third Street Promenade and Silver Lake and places like that, where they're asking for very high rent. Of course. And um, there's not really a lot of people spending money day in and day out. And all of a sudden your occupancy costs are 20, 30, 40%, and which makes your margins extremely, extremely low. So what we look for are similar concepts that have done well. Uh, in the same area, not directly competing necessarily because, you know, you don't want competition Um, for us because we're a coffee brand. We don't, um, we like to look and see, okay, how many specialty coffee concepts are nearby? We go and we sit and we see our people buying coffee in the morning. Is there parking? People get out of their car, go grab a coffee, head to work. Um, How many, how many strollers do we see? You know, people walking their dogs? And is there a community of people who spend time out and about? Are they getting breakfast, lunch, dinner on a, um, a regular basis? Or is this like a place where like Third Street Promenade, I'll go down there just for like the Levi's store, right? That's like once a year, you know, like people, and there are people who live down there, but it's very touristy and it's mm-hmm. very seasonal. And since yeah. the pandemic, yeah. the pro- promenade has been eviscerated. So mm, yeah, so there's there are you know all, the the landscape in especially in Los Angeles, but kind of everywhere as far as real estate is concerned, um, has really changed a lot. Um, I think I've it's been my opinion for many years, f- probably five plus years, that the real estate market has been overpriced, especially for commercial restaurants. Have to basically be a unicorn or get a phenomenal deal to really make it work. And that's why especially brands are like, well, we've done a pro forma and we can open, if we can open five of these and where our margins are this, even though our occupancy costs are greater than we'd like them to be, that's where our target profit center is, right? At, at five or 10 or 20 or whatever it is. Um, so then it encourages brands to raise money and to scale and to try and hit that mark because that's where their their profitability is. But Unless you're backed by a lot of capital and have the infrastructure and the team who can execute those things, my advice is always to go old school. There are places where restaurants work. There are places where there is foot traffic. People go out and spend money all the time and go and spend time there. Learn about the marketplace. 
go to other restaurants and coffee shops, ask questions, you know, spend money, go and learn about it and say, okay, can my brand thrive here? And for us, a lot of that is driven too by nightlife because we're really busy in that fourth day part, which is late night after dinner. And equally important is, um, is early morning or breakfast, you know, eight to 10 AM because, uh, we have a, a coffee program that we need to support as well. So, um, there's no silver bullet. That's for sure. Um, and I've done consulting and worked with a lot of other brands over the years. And, you know, there are places where you think is going to be a hundred percent hit and you get a great lease and everything is just lined up. You're like, oh, we're just going to crush it here. It just doesn't work. You know, national brands find that out all the time. You know, there, there are plenty of duds for Shake Shack. So, um, it's also very important, I think, for especially for entrepreneurs and people who are looking to scale, maybe, or maybe there are people who want to open their first restaurant. They have a great catering business, or maybe they have a food truck, or maybe they're doing pop-ups, or maybe they're working for another brand. You know, it's a capital-intensive um, industry to open a restaurant and to build a brand. Um, so try to try to be as efficient as possible. If you can get into a really high quality, high volume food hall, that would be great. Um, those can be tricky as well. Um, landlords of food halls always, you know, um, have very interesting leases, you know, you, you have to really, really try to conserve cash as best as you can early on, because you don't know what type of changes are going to happen. I mean, I know so many people in the industry and colleagues of mine who are opening multiple restaurants and then all of a sudden, oh, it's a global pandemic. So that, so what do you do? You know, you've just staffed up and you have a new restaurant that has an opener is just opening. Um, and you have to be prepared to pivots and pivots cost money. So, um, like I said, it's not a silver, there's no silver bullet, but a lot of the old school ways of doing it, which, you know, seek, I would also tell new restaurateurs and entrepreneurs, seek out people in the industry and talk to them. It's hard to find mentors in the industry because we're really busy. <laughs> um, and a lot of people are just like, oh, I wish I could give you some advice, but I'm working 100 hour weeks. It's just the nature of, of the, the industry, which is, which is terrible and unhealthy, by the way. Um, but, uh, you know, learn from those who have already done it. And that's really the best that you can do. You touched on a couple of critical things, and we're talking about managing labor, and labor cost is probably the biggest expense in many restaurants, of course, and multiple day parts. And it sounds like you're open early because you're coffee, but then you also said that a really busy time would be after dinner. I mean, we're talking a lot of labor hours each day. You're obviously open probably seven days a week and all that kind of stuff. Do you close during the day at any period? Or are you just open rock solid straight through and, and the, you know, and it's cost effective to be there? You know, this is a critical decision many operators need to decide. It's like, do I open for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or just lunch and dinner, or just dinner only? And it's like, how do I manage labor? And then the second part of that question, I know that was a mouthful, would be the labor shortage has got to be affecting that. And you've got multiple locations and you're open lots and lots and lots of hours. It's like, are you having challenges there as well? So let's talk about both pieces if we can. Uh, a lot of this, and I'm, I'm not an expert, right? Like I, I wouldn't consider myself a guru. I'm just a dude who's had a lot of experience doing a lot of different things. Um, unless you're a fine dining restaurant, I and you have some lunch business or brunch business, I would never close in the middle of the day. I, I, as a consumer still, especially when I travel, I almost can't believe when a place is closed between three and five, five, unless, cause I d I've done fine dining and I've run those restaurants and I've worked in them. I understand what it takes to reset and prep, especially if you've got a high volume lunch. Um, and a lot of people aren't spending money between three and five. I get that. But um, I wouldn't close for any reason seven days a week um, because there is there are guests out there who whom you're going to meet during those periods of time. And those are an opportunity to make a lifelong guest, have somebody who will come back every day, um, a, a fan who will give you a great review and bring back 10 people. Um, and you know, it's a very competitive industry. You can't turn down any, any amount of income. Now, managing your labor during, 
um, slow periods is something you learn over a period of time, right? And it stinks because you don't want to have a skeleton crew and then all of a sudden get a big rush and then people are overwhelmed and then your team is feeling you know, overwhelmed and underappreciated and overworked. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's difficult. And that's why it's important to have the ability to adjust, right? You get a big catering order or um, somebody says, hey, we're going to bring in a group or whatever. You should be able to add someone to a shift or you should have a salaried person or an owner who can jump in and help out. It's also important to have systems, efficient systems that support um, volume with low labor too. I mean, we built we built the pie hole where, you know, somebody comes in and says, "Hey, I want an apple pie." We don't go in the back and roll dough, right? So, um, having efficient systems to be able to execute and to move a line quickly and to give people a great experience too. You know, I mean, great service is important, um, but it's tricky. You know, like it, it, you can't just have tons and tons of labor hoping people will show up right i would say early on when you're opening a restaurant to learn about the marketplace the ebb and flow of the meal periods and the day parts um i would overstaff and invest in in labor i think that should be built in a budget um for at least a year where you have too many people to give a crazy good experience um and so that you can make adjustments. I mean, you really don't know until you get, sure. like for us, a mm-hmm. line for eight hours, just a line all day, every day. You'll find out if your systems are uh, working, if your inventory is right, if your PARs are correct, um, and if your labor and your um, staffing systems are working. I mean, people getting overwhelmed. Are you making sure that people are taking their breaks, um, that you're moving people through the stations so that they're not getting burnt out and that everybody's kind of cross-trained to be able to jump in. I mean, we love to have a labor target at each one of our units, but what we also learned is every unit's a little bit different too. We do staff up uh, on the weekends, especially in the evenings, and then it's a little bit um, more slim in the mornings during the week, right? But um, you know, the model is not a lot different than a traditional kind of cafe um, where you have a barista and somebody doing prep and, and preparing things. And then um, as it gets busier, you know, we add people throughout the day. But we also have there's more complexity to our business because we've got e-commerce and we've got catering and all these other aspects, too. And we have dedicated teams who fulfill those needs. Yeah, I mean, there've been so many. That's that's a great answer to that question. There's been so many challenges with labor in this business, and so many people mm-hmm. have less left the hospitality space. The unemployment thing obviously affected this mm-hmm. business, and you know, I don't care what business it is right now, people are struggling to find, motivate, keep a great team. Mm-hmm. Are you having any labor challenges, and how are you overcoming those? Are you incentivizing people? Um, paying higher wages now because you can drive down the street and see signs on every McDonald's saying now paying 15 bucks and a hiring bonus and a, you know, and a longevity bonus and all these bonuses and incentives. And it's like, now you got to compete with every other business besides restaurants. Um, What challenges have you faced or or are you facing? So we're facing the same challenges as everybody else. And my friends and colleagues in the industry, everybody's in the same boat. I mean, and it really, really kind of stinks because c- consumers or our guests don't care. No, nor <laughs> right? should they. It's just like, yeah, it's expectations like, oh, you know, have to be met right. or exceeded. Yep. Exactly. And, you know, I, to, to anybody who's not in the restaurant industry listening to this, please be patient. The What we're doing is kind of the same thing we've always done. You know, we, we pay well um, and it's it's not my philosophy to, and I would probably be, if we had a thousand employees and had a massive labor shortage, I would probably have a different um, take on this, but it's, it's intrinsic motivation that matters most when finding a high quality staff or building a team. I, I don't want people who are like, well, I'll, I'll serve pie and coffee and be part of the brand and believe in these ideals and want to be part of this culture that you have for, if you pay me $500, like, that's just not, 
I don't. We will do that. There, there, it's got to be a name. Yeah, totally. You need you know, to we, have a true desire to serve the public, be there for the right reasons. Everyone works for a paycheck, but what you mentioned earlier, it's like you got to have a passion for what you're doing, and that totally translates into the guest experience. It's all relevant and right. tri trickle down. It's like in leadership plays into this too. It's like lead by example, you know, and motivate and create what I call the dream team. It sounds like you're doing that. So I'd be really curious to hear about, you know, your, your management style and what your training philosophies are and how you onboard somebody and how you get mm -hmm. them into the pie hole culture. Tell us about that. So the base of the pie hole culture is based on this, this concept called servant leadership. Um, servant leadership's old school from the seventies. It's actually a philosophy that um, is mostly implemented in education. Servant leadership, there are the 12 principles and there's ways of implementing it. And it's kind of the core of our culture, but really distilled down, it is um, you show up to serve your team so that they can serve guests. And that's it, right? So every day I show up to one of our restaurants or a meeting or whatever, it's always like, how, how can I best serve you today? Like I don't come in with an, any other agenda and we want our baristas and our managers and our leads and cooks, everybody else, the same thing, servant leadership. We just show up like, how are we going to make your day better? My team, right? Because every day is a different day. We're all individuals. You can't create a system for a monolith as though we're not humans, right? And every day is a different challenge. Every day, um, people show up in a little bit different condition, right? So if we're going to serve each other first, and we're going to be there to make sure that we can get through high volume periods, or we can get through a massive catering order, or if we can um, knock out a, you know, a thousand unit e-commerce order or something like that, that bases, okay, they've got my back. They'll, I'll get the resources and the help that I need. Um, if I don't know how to do something, somebody will help me, show me, right? Um, we have a culture where it's not punitive. If we make mistakes or if we do something wrong with a guest, um, it's always about learning. Um, we, I feel like, you know, in our system, if there's a, a write-up or a reprimand or some sort of progressive discipline that has to happen. We've totally failed at, at leadership. I've failed in my job. It's really only if somebody did something on purpose or is being a bad person or trying to hurt somebody else or not part of the servant leadership um, culture, that's when it's like, okay, now this is kind of a problem. Everything else is just like, we made some mistakes, which means we weren't trained right or we're not, we don't have a culture of learning taking place. Um, we're not adapting and evolving. You know, we're not communicating effectively, all of those things. So, um, so what we do is we, we, you know, I've heard it before a million times in other brands, which, and it's a great, we hire for personality. We try to find great people. We tell them all about what the pie hole is about and say, this is what we do, right? We do team interviews where there's all kinds of different people. Um, in the interview, the interview process is multiple steps. And we're just trying to find good people who not only will fit the team and the culture, but also who believe in servant leadership and, you know, pie and coffee and just kind of like want to get a vibe of it and then want to be a part of that. And once we go through that process, then there's an on, there's a traditional kind of onboarding. And we always say, you know, we're going to give you a couple weeks. We're going to check in throughout the process. And if this is not right for you, let us know and we will help you find another job, right? Um, we'll lay you off so you can have unemployment. We will figure out a way in which you can find a place that's better for you and versus having an environment where people are there and they don't want to be there, right? Um, and so... You know, the, the process part of it is culture learning. A lot of it is systems learning. But really, the, the secret sauce is um, getting feedback all along the way through the training process from the team and the people, the trainers, 
and saying like, how are they doing? Is it, how's it fitting? How are, how is the culture changing as we add new people and elements to the, to the restaurant and to the team? <clears throat> and, you know, we don't have a box that you can check and be like, okay, culture achieved. Right. So there is, you know, a lot of emphasis on making sure your managers and the leadership of the company are doing things in the way in which, you know, the founders or the, the people who have kind of built the culture, um, have, have set it up and, and embedded it. Um, and that's very difficult, you know, um, because especially when you start scaling and opening additional units is like, how do you, how do you have the same philosophies and the same culture and the same systems and do it in the same way to the expectations of me, for example, if you're a franchisee, right? Like it's just, it's just very difficult. And you could be <clears throat> a Starbucks with, you know, 17,000 units, or you could be a two unit, you know, sandwich concept. And it's still the same kind of thing that, you know, culture, everybody talks about culture, 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 um, and systems. Like those, yes, those are the two things that matter most, right? Well, um, it's not as simple as just saying, well, here's my manual and here's my system, or here's the culture. Now be, go on with it. Right. Um, so it's, it takes a lot of work and, um, and it evolves over time too. So, uh, you know, for us, it's really been, um, you know, the, the hospitality industry and especially the pie industry, it's a, it's a heart driven human built endeavor. <clears throat> and, you know, we really want to surround ourselves with people that we like and that we want to work with. And we hope the people that come onto our teams and we found people who believe in those same things, it's not really any more difficult than that. So the most important thing I would say when you have multiple locations is consistency, right? You've got to maintain a consistent experience, everything from the vibe and everything being on brand and on strategy to the quality of the products, to the quality of the service experience and everything along the line all needs to feel like if I go to this location, it's going to be this way. If I go to that location, it's going to be like, I can close my eyes and be in a pie hole and I know I'm in the pie hole, right? So that's really hard to maintain. So you obviously have a management team and you've got managers of each stores and all that kind of stuff. So I'm sure you have plenty to add about that, but I also want to get into, you know, the quality of the products you're making, because you started the conversation by saying that everything had to be the highest quality. We were charging a premium because we were serving a premium product and we continue to do so. And that became, or I should say becomes harder and harder as you expand locations, because you got to maintain that quality and that consistency. Now, did you make everything in that original store and you sourced all local ingredients? So let's talk about the sourcing, where your ingredients come from. Let's talk about you know, did you ultimately have to build a commissary that now serves all these individual locations? Like what's that whole process like to maintain that consistency, Sean? Yeah. So, um, we, we made everything out of the original location, um, until we couldn't anymore. And that was actually quick, quickly. We exceeded yeah, yeah. the, the, the capacity. It was a very small restaurant. Um, and so we moved to a commissary about the same time that we started scaling um, both the corporate owned and franchise stores. And then we've moved to a larger production facility um, from the first commissary uh, back in 2018. Um, and so we had re restaurants and franchises who are making their own, making their own products. And there was a consistency problem. It was really, really difficult to make sure that everything was perfect. You know, we we wanted to incentivize our franchisees to manage their own business and their own labor and to innovate. And we, you know, we had systems um, where our franchisees could develop new pies and they, we, you know, we would approve them and then we could scale them. And there was all kinds of really cool things going on at that time, but um, it was really right for the brand and franchisees and everybody really agreed that it, we should be making everything in one place. We moved to a production facility where we can, we produce all products out of. 
which is great um, because we own it and I own it. So I, we can make sure that the quality is perfect. And um, what's been really, really cool for us, it's just very validating is as we've grown, our products only gotten better. Um, you know, I have lifelong fans who stay in touch with us. They're like, well, the Earl Grey tea pie was changed my life, but it, how is it even better now? Right. And while it's better because our systems and our recipes and everything are constantly tweaked, um, to make them as best as they possibly can be. Right. Um, so that's kind of how we handle consistency. The other, um, for ingredients, you know, we used to work with local farms. Um, we had primarily organic ingredients. Um, and what we learned is that the highly seasonal nature of produce and then having to be able to plan a menu out seasons in advance, um, is really difficult because you don't know what the organic local strawberries are going to be like six or nine months prior to developing your menu and creating marketing materials and all that. You don't know what the quality of that, that produce is going to be. We also found that like organic farm, local farm products were really, really delicious, but super inconsistent, very difficult to build a standardized recipe around a, you don't know what size the berry is going to be. Um, and you know, a lot of times organic too, is, there are more, um, imperfections in the fruit, um, fr fruit, for example. Um, so we still use a lot of organic ingredients, but it's always about consistency and high quality. Um, and our supply chain has to be high quality as well. Like it would be great if I owned a massive like apple orchard. Um, but <laughs> Yeah, vertically it, because we don't integrated right on everything. Exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, we don't want to be a farmer just yet, but, yep. um, yeah, so that, that's how, so what we have really great suppliers, um, and we have perfected our recipes and our systems around what we can get on a consistent basis. Um, because now that we're kind of at that stage where, you know, we have, we do like corporate gifting and catering where people are like, Hey, in six months from now, can I order 2,500 apple pies? Um, I, can't, I can't have my farmer be like, well, the apple crop's kind of stinky this year, you know, and then all of a sudden not have the pies when I've already taken the order. So right. um, there's a cost benefit to making those decisions, but um, it works really well for us. So you mentioned earlier about PARs and systems, which are critically important. And as your business scales, obviously those PARs have to keep up and, and there's got to be patterns and trends that you study so that you know on a Monday versus a Saturday, it's like how many pies you need. Now you've got online ordering, which has been absolutely critical for you know restaurants surviving the pandemic, but you're also shipping the product nationally. So all of this has to come through the commissary and you have to obviously ramp up for demand. And does it change much is it totally consistent now your business or does it have cyclical patterns during the year like tell us about that well when it comes to pars and data um we, we take pandemic out so yeah like, yeah of course you know 16 months that don't matter i mean i'm kidding like they matter a lot <laughs> but um we've got a decade worth of data Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So yeah. we go back to look at the historic sales data and we have pretty accurate predictors of what our PARs are going to be week, week in and week out. Um, it's all based on sales. Um, and then as we've grown um, additional parts of the business, whether it's uh, corporate gifting, e-commerce, catering, um, you know, we have to have some held inventory. Uh, and then our production cycle of how, cause we still make everything by hand and it's all still, you know, handmade dough and all of those things. We have to adjust that so that we're prepared to take large orders, um, add staff, maybe put an overnight shift, you know, we pay for some overtime or whatever that is. Um, what we won't do is just make a bunch of pie and hope that it sells or to freeze a product that can't be, or, you know, it's, it's always about 
the quality and the experience um, and everything else kind of gets backwards planned from there. Um, but also it, it was a lot of, um, you know, trial and error too, where we, we had to say no a lot to a lot of sales and a lot of big opportunities because we weren't prepared or we just like, eh, we can't really effectively do this to our standards and to our expectations. So um, it is helpful to have been around the block a few times. Um, so now that our systems and our experiences all, you know, uh, have validated us along the way. And now we can embed that and provide that data and those systems to predict uh, what the sales and PARs and inventory are going to be to our franchisees and, you know, to our managers and, and things like that. So it, so it works really well right now. Yeah. Like food cost, obviously in many restaurants is the second largest expense. And sometimes it's very close to payroll. It's, a, you know, the two biggest expenses in restaurants mm -hmm. and obviously managing food costs is important and waste and spoilage and all that sort of thing. And, you know, products are perishable if you're not freezing them. So the shelf life affects obviously this, the waste and the spoilage, which obviously rises food costs and all that. So are you, you know, um, what is the shelf life of a buy basically of fresh pie? Each yeah, each pie is a little bit. Yeah, yeah, each pie is a little bit different. Um, you know, whether it's a chocolate pie, a cream pie, there's a lot of dairy in it if it needs to be refrigerated. Mm -hmm. um, some of our pies are best served and stored um, at room temperature for a short period of time. Yeah, so they're all a little bit different, but it's only a couple of days. Okay, I mean, no, no pie can just like sit for like a week, you know, which is been a challenge for grocery, even though our grocery program has grown a lot and, you know, we've got some really cool things happening the rest of the year, you know, we're not, we're not going to add stabilizers or sure. any of that stuff either. Of course not, not to maintain the quality and, and you yeah. know, that, that the guest expects. So you're also offering individual slices. Like I can come in, walk in off the street and I can get a cream pie, a chocolate pie, a blueberry pie, probably, you know, any number of pies. And that obviously, you know, you, depending on the time of day and all that sort of thing, can you continue to serve single slices versus whole pies without it affecting, you know, any waste or spoilage? Yeah. The, the business plan is that sold by the individual slice, right. Mm. Or the, the pot pie or the savory, right. It's all yes. about, we do really well daily, weekly, yearly on, um, whole pie sales, especially around the holidays. Um, but that's not the core of the business and, and that, that can't sustain a business, right? Like any pie business can't just be based about selling on whole pies. It's tricky because if you're slicing a pie and like, you know, everybody thinks, oh, well, you know, how hard can it be? It can be pretty hard to make sure there's no waste. Um, Absolutely. and then you don't have a half pie just sitting there at the end of the day. So you know, you have to strategically sell and you sometimes we discount some things. It's just like, hey, of you know, um, you know, yeah, move stuff. Right. Exactly. You know, the PAR system and the ordering system has been very effective and we really have low waste. It's pretty it, it's because dialed. it's so expensive to make, too, that yeah. it's like everybody is obsessed with waste. Like at the end of every day, we do a slice count. To make sure we know exactly what we have at the end of the day, what's been wasted, what rolls over. But yeah, it's it's huge, especially, you know, if you're a franchisee too. And we have some wholesale accounts as well, where we're selling pie and they're reselling it. Um, we have to train really effectively to maintain, help them maintain their waste and their pars as well. We don't have a problem selling out of a, of a flavor. Um as long as it's towards the end of the day. I mean, scarcity is, is good in our industry because um, there's always something delicious for you to order. You know, um, Some people have their mindset on one particular flavor and they can be disappointed, but we always make sure that the team is trained to make sure people leave happy. So you're doing some wholesaling. Um, do you have any plans for you know large scale distribution so that restaurants, our audience, could order your pies, that sort of thing? Or can our restaurants that are listening right now somehow get in touch with you and order pies wholesale? Yeah. So we our wholesale program has been around for a couple of years now, um, and like anything, you know, it's trial and error. Um, we're primarily our wholesale program is is focused on it multi unit 
restaurants. Sure. So we've been working with, you know, 20 plus unit restaurants. There's no, that's an arbitrary number. We can have a system where they can have held inventory, regular orders, maintain pars. Uh, we, we also have a program where we will make pies specifically for restaurants. If it's a super high end pie or maybe it's a white label pie, you know, yeah. those kinds of things. Uh-huh. Cool. What doesn't work for us is the one unit restaurant, even if it's a high volume, um, because it can be dessert sales can be so inconsistent. Sure. Um, and our infrastructure, as far as delivery and fulfillment, is m- built more for grocery and to go through broadliners sure. and, and larger distribution channels. So, if you're a restaurant and you know you move a lot of dessert, like reach out, like we we. We love good partnerships and it also helps us innovate and it keeps us excited and things like that. We're really, really focused right now on e-commerce for wholesale, uh, e-commerce, large corporate gifting. Um, you know, big companies right now have a lot of people working from home. So we're, sure. we have a program by Great which we can get people pie and have pie parties and, and love it. that stuff via Zoom. But And then grocery is huge for us. We have a really awesome partnership regionally with um, Gelson's Markets. So you can find our pie holes, uh, which is our little two-bite pie treats in all of Gelson's Markets. Uh, one of our, we, our newest bakery that we open, Pie Hole Bakery, is inside a Gelson's Market. Um, and Gulson's is a very high-end, uh, really, really amazing uh, grocery chain here in the region. <clears throat> and, you know, those those types of relationships, if we, we build them over time because we can maintain high quality and we have a lot of control, um, that's really what we've been focused on for, for wholesale. We're also really, really um, opportunistic. We understand that the industry changes and that it's usually uh, entrepreneurs and relatively small brands that are the ones making the big changes and, and innovating. So we're always listening and looking for cool partnerships. You know, I really love the mobile cart. Do you have more than one? Does each store have a mobile cart that goes to events? And that's also part of your brand building. I mean, that was really cool. It's kind of like a mini food truck, right? And it travels. Yeah, the pie cart. So we got yeah. the pie <laughs> cart right during the pandemic thinking, hey, yeah. this would be you know, this is the move, right? This would be farmer's markets. We can do weddings and all this stuff. We only have one. It's It's been really, really cool because beer gardens will have us come and serve pie and cold brew coffee. And um, it's been mostly for private events, people having parties and weddings and those kinds of things. We, we learned a lot about the cart um, the cart is, is, is pretty difficult to maintain it. You know, you have to have transportation for it and have a team around it. And it's actually pretty heavy. Um, and the most important thing is you, we kind of have to have a system around it, which is inventory in our, um, on backup to to replenish it. It's refrigerated. So it's, it's really, really fun. I think my catering team who, um, who manages the, pie cart wishes it didn't exist because it's kind of a lot yeah (laughs) um yeah but you know we have to remain relevant and and it's unique um like the brand is unique it's one of those things that we learned a lot with and i would love if each unit had one i think the the marketplace and the economy is just coming back to the point where we're evaluating that but for now, it's kind of like part of our extension of our catering program. Yeah. I mean, I've lived in a lot of places and I've seen a lot of successful restaurants that have sort of mobile food trucks that sort of augment their brand um, in addition to the bricks and mortar places. And they take them to like local football games and community mm-hmm. events and all that kind of stuff. And I just think it's great PR and it's great, you know, yeah, it's great support, PR. all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. that makes sense. So I'm glad you brought that up because it's, uh, you know, it's something our audience can think and another feather in their cap for you know marketing for sure let's talk about you also deliver right you you deliver pie we're really lucky pre-pandemic to have a robust uh, pickup and delivery infrastructure all online digital app based you know mobile based so we didn't have to do the same super hard pivot that a lot of restaurant brands had to do which is like oh no like People can't come into my restaurant anymore. I have to have it delivered or, you know, yeah, contactless exactly. pickup. 
we went through um that. so we were really lucky i mean we we literally had it in place so we focused on pivoting our marketing our systems like a lot of our restaurants turned into almost like ghost ghost kitchens where you know nobody could sit inside um, so we had lots of dry goods and lots of packaging. You had have systems and lines for all the couriers to show up, um, and some customers who would come in and do you know pick up. Uh, the delivery's great, especially for comfort food. And what are the feedback we received is, okay, so I'm in quarantine. This really sucks. I don't get to see my friends and family. This chicken pot pie saved my life. To be able to to reach our guests um, wherever they are. Uh, and went how how they want it um, was re- really fortunate. Um, and happy to be very happy that we were some fo- we we're doing some forward thinking to build that infrastructure ahead of time. Just looking at the way consumer demand was moving towards mobile, and you know people want what they want when they want it and how they want it, and we don't dictate those terms, right? So you can get a whole pie, you could get six pies, you can get a one slice of pie. You could get a shot of espresso delivered if you want. Awesome. That's, yeah. that's great. Let's talk about the franchise opportunity. Obviously, COVID has created lots of opportunity for people leaving the industry, people leaving their jobs because restaurants have closed, all that kind of stuff. People that may have hospitality experience that are looking for a cool gig that you know have some business savvy. What are you looking for? And you know, how many franchises do you wish to create to maintain control of the company, all that sort of thing? in the future. Yeah, we don't we don't have a standard or goal about franchising. Franchising is just a way of like forming cool partnerships for us. So, if we open no more franchises or find zero franchisees in the future, I'm cool with that. If somebody really that matches our corporate culture, that believes the same things we believe, believe that has a shared vision and has experience, you know, we we talk right? It's got to be compatible to the brand. Like we're, we're at this stage right now, like we don't want want or need to open up 10 units or 50 units this year. That might be a pathway for us in the future and we'll take it as it comes. But so we're looking for entrepreneurs, people who have the same ideals, you know, understand the hospitality industry, believe in the brand, understand the product, have identified a niche or a market that they believe they could bring the brand and they have to have a proven track record of doing something similar. And then then we'll talk. And then we all have to get along because you know yeah. franchise agreements are 10 yeah. plus years long. So it's like getting married. Sure. So you better like that person. It's got to be a perfect fit on both sides for sure. Yeah. Well, Sean, we've covered a lot of ground today. Have we missed anything? Anything you want to talk about? Anything you want to tell us or best advice to other operators out there listening? I would say I've been doing this for a long time you know, the majority of my life. The hospitality industry is not for everybody. Um, It's really brutal, um, especially if you've had a lot of experiences, you know, if you're getting home at 3 a.m. and waking up early and baking early and traveling and, you know, it can, it's a, it's a really tough industry on top of already being an entrepreneur. I would say prioritize your mental health, prioritize the things that matter most in life first. Don't put your business before family or your own physical and mental health and make sure that that you're always doing it for the right reasons. Is is this something that you believe in? Are you making the the right decisions based on what the guests want, what your partners want? Um, Is this the right decision for decision making for the team and the culture that you're trying to build and maintain? And is this right for you? Do you wake up every day? excited and passionate about what you're doing. And if the answer to like all of those things is no, or some of those things is no, you might want to get a different job or do something differently just because you have, you know, it's the sunk cost proposition, right? Yes. Just because you've put in a decade, just because you built this restaurant, just because you're a Michelin star chef, just because those things doesn't mean that you miss your daughter's second birthday, right? Like, you really, really, I mean, I didn't do that, but sure, um, sure, sure. I'm saying, but I see this and I see oh, yeah. people in the industry yeah. just getting burnt out. I see people Tied in the, the industry yep. going to rehab. I see people, it is more brutal than any other industry by a huge margin. No question and about that. There's no point in doing it 
if you come out worse on the other end, or if you're not building something that you're excited and proud of, wake up every day with the right priorities in mind. And then, and then don't back off of those. That's, that's my advice. Excellent. That's awesome. Well, Sean, it's been my pleasure hosting you on the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. You are a great guest. Thank you, audience, for tuning in as always, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Roger. Everyone, I am so happy that you tuned into this episode because, again, there were so many key nuggets about how this operation is growing, how they're literally in two locations in Tokyo and Saudi Arabia, in addition to seven locations in Southern California and still growing. Obviously, there are systems in place. We covered some of those systems as well as staff training philosophy and service and all those foundational elements that really help you rock your restaurant. You know, the systems I'm talking about are also available in a turnkey package called the Restaurant Rockstars Academy. Check it out at restaurantrockstars.com on our shop page. It'll tell you all the individual systems that you can easily execute in your own restaurant to transform and take your restaurant to the next level. I appreciate the sponsor of this episode. It's Seven Shifts. And why not leave us a review if you're enjoying, you know, the podcast as well well as our new question feature. Again, go to the show notes for this episode at our website, restaurantrockstars.com. Halfway down the page, you'll see the button that says, ask us a question, hit the button and record your question and I'll send you an answer. It's that simple. So thanks again and we'll see you next episode. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.